Rickard Wixell. I have never seen a patient in my life that hasn't done everything in their power to remove the pain. So when we talk about the lazy patient, the wimpy patient, it makes me just sad because then you haven't listened. You just have not listened to the story. Pain is some serious business. It ain't everyone who knows what to do about it. Now I hear there's a podcast just about this. It doesn't talk of pain alone, but other interesting things distracting the mind from it. So I suggest you tune in to Outsmart the Pain and listen to what Karsten has to say about it. Get ahead. Get it done. Listen to the podcast and maybe change your life or someone else's. Today I have the opportunity to talk to psychologist Richard or Richard uh, Richard Wixell, who, just like all my other guests, doesn't really know what I will be asking him. So we'll see. Uh, very warmly welcome, Richard. Thank you, Kasten. It's a pleasure to be here. Are you nervous? Oh yes. <laughs> yeah, of course. Good. Uh, first of all, you are a psychologist, and just to um, help people out there, do you have a, a short explanation what the difference is between a psychologist and a psychiatrist? Because people oh, always seem to mix these two uh, different occupations with each other. Oh, that's a good one. I guess it can be um, described at different levels, but a psychiatrist is a physician having the opportunity to prescribe medication. Now I said opportunity, that's sometimes also <laughs> both a blessing and a curse, but a psychologist is, is not providing medication, at least not in this country, although there's a discussion of having psychologists prescribing some type of medications as well. Psychiatry uh, is, I guess, defined as uh, the more uh, malignant type of psychiatric problems, while psychology is really the psychology of normal human behavior. Psychologists are working within the wide range of areas. Clinical psychology is addressing things like anxiety, depression, pain, which should be considered part of the normal range of experiences and results in a normal range of behavior that are sometimes maladaptive or dysfunctional in specific context. And that's why we then need to normalize and validate these experiences. That was a very good explanation. So the physician is the psychiatrist and psychology is an entity of its own. Uh, so to speak. W what about psychotherapists? Is oh. that somewhere in between or...? or... <laughs> well, you're, you're diving right into all of the tricky definitions of professions, I guess. Um, a psychotherapist can be essentially both a psychologist uh, and a physician mm -hmm. or MD, but it can also actually be a um, an occupational therapist or even a priest. Psychotherapy is... Um, training in psychotherapy and you can access that type of training and get the certificate 
you're coming from different type of professions. So like a, a pain specialist can actually be a, a neurologist or anesthetist or general practitioner. It's the education for becoming a pain specialist. And this is an education to become a psychotherapist then. Obviously for a psychologist, there is a much smaller difference for a psychologist becoming a psychotherapist. It is built into the professional basic training. But for someone else, a physiotherapist or occupational therapist or physician, there are more elements to learn about and more skills to train because it's not part of the basic training. Good. We kind of jumped into something right away. People who listen now have no idea who you are and wonder why was he invited? That, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what are you doing? I could start by saying that I actually know that you are... Um, tremendous clinical psychologist who is very good in the dialogue with the patient coming up with very practical solutions really um, and i will actually devote most of this episode to practical things to do when you are in pain for instance because i've talked a lot about the pain and maybe medication and all these things but practical solutions on what to do i will talk about today but you do a lot of more things and just so you don't feel very disappointed that you didn't get to speak about all the other things you do now you have the opportunity to tell us who are you ricard tell us Oh, wow. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, what if I don't know? I got into psychology many, many years ago. My original plan was to become a business person and do finances and stuff. And then I just found myself being blown away by um, the field of psychology and the potential of psychological interventions. I saw in my own life how people were struggling with chronic pain and how pain can make people disabled and, and ruin their everyday life and ruin their, their dreams, their future. So I became very eager to learn how to assist these individuals in making the most out of life, really. Uh, I had some ideas of working within the somatic care or the field of behavior medicine because I found it to be uh, important to help these individuals that suffered from medical conditions. Many times we cannot really do what they thought we could do, remove their pain or uh, eliminate their epilepsy or, or whatever they're struggling with. Most of the psychologists in Sweden and I think elsewhere are, are working within the, the healthcare area of psychiatry. Very few psychologists actually work within, for example, pain or the somatic care. So that became a very important objective, I think, for me to, to move into that field. And I thought for a while of, of working within epilepsy, and then uh, I had some opportunities to start working within the field of pain. I did some work with uh, children and adolescents with chronic pain, which was very interesting, fascinating, and highly meaningful. So when I started to work on a treatment approach, it was with young people struggling with pain. And most people know that chronic pain is very common, but not many know that it is almost as common in teenagers, which is a big problem because teenagers tend to become adults. 
and <laughs> sometimes and, yeah the pain can to not go away what we see in 15 year old kids with chronic pain is is essentially uh, future adults with chronic pain mm. and we are not doing what we should do to address these problems in its early stages i started some sort of journey where i, I wanted to develop a, a treatment approach that could not necessarily remove the pain but help individuals to manage their pain in order to live a, a vital meaningful and active life and today i use the word resilience resilience is essentially about addressing those challenges in a way that makes it possible to live meaningful life and make the most out of it um, so resilience is the way that you adapt to what happens around you the possibility for you to do that Resilience has been defined in different ways. I think the term was originally uh, used in developmental psychology and referred to things like socioeconomic status and the parents' work situation and, and things like that, even genetic factors, I guess. More recently, we have worked on defining resilience in a more useful way, where resilience can be defined as something that we can actually address that is more within our control. It's hard to influence who your parents are, which has implications for where you live, for example, and what social context you're navigating within. Defining resilience as something that is more closely related to behaviors. Colleagues of mine have defined it as the ability to act with life values, short-term goals, and essentially live the life that you want to to live also in the presence of those unfortunate and, and sometimes severe experiences that that form your existence uh, for example chronic pain and tend to be interfering with the activities and the decisions that you need to make in order to uh, have that meaningful life So it sounds like uh, something very practical that you use, I don't know, your own personality and your life surrounding you and trying to make it work together with your pain or whatever problem you have. It's not some kind of mysterious thing with psychology, something yeah. completely different that you are not used to, but kind of yeah. use your life. Would you yes. say that? Oh, oh, yes. I mean, this is not mystical at all, I would say. This is very, very straightforward. It's funny, sometimes it's kind of disappointing to people, I think, that there is no mystical cure for, for the problem that they have. And, and it can probably be seen as simplistic to some people. But I think at the end of the day, what we do is what we do. What? What we do is what we do. We do things. And, and what we do actually have implications for ourselves and for others. So we can actually start to influence our lives and the context we operate in only by what we do. What I concluded many years ago was that this is about doing it's not about what we feel or what we think as much as it is about what we do. So when we started to develop the treatment approach, the doing was in focus. And it is not, as you said, it's not like mystical or, or 
strange. It's not even hard to understand, actually. Sometimes it is difficult to comprehend fully because what we're pointing out is the need to do things that that are really hard. Mm. But talking about all these therapies, I'm not very acquainted with all of them, but uh, there are CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, and we have the uh, ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, and there are psychodynamic therapies where you I think you go through your childhood there, maybe. And there are a lot of uh, different kinds of uh, therapies. Is it all the same or, or are you just lucky if you meet someone that has the right therapy for you? Or how, how does that work? Is there a new yeah. therapy now that has developed? Oh, yes. There are always new therapies, as we say about scientists. They rather share toothbrush than theory. And that goes for uh, clinicians as well. You know, they, they want to have their own thing, their own little method, their own little device, their own little, which is a problem um, because it becomes like a myriad of different options that have different names, but maybe very, very similar. What we have been doing uh, is referred to as cognitive behavior therapy sometimes. Uh, it's referred to as acceptance and commitment therapy sometimes. I rather talk about behavior therapy because it's about behaviors. It's about what we do. And sometimes what we do can be seen by others. Sometimes it cannot. For example, when we think uh, that's something we do, but it cannot be seen by others. Uh, but it's still behaviors. It's still an organism behaving. So we as organisms, we operate by doing things. So, so behaviors are essentially about that it's behavior therapy and then we can have different labels to announce to the world that there are major or minor variations and acceptance and commitment therapy has sometimes been referred to as the third wave i'm not super fond of waves except for surfing of course there's a development in every field and and there has been developments also in the field of behavior therapy, but ACT is sometimes referred to as sort of the third generation because of some relevant differences. For example, during the 80s or where, whenever it was, there was a, a, an emphasis on changing thoughts. You should focus on changing how you think about things, for example, catastrophizing or very negative thought patterns should be changed. And then you should start to see things differently. And, and after that, you should then be able to behave differently. So that was the sort of the cognitive revolution where cognitions were in focus and the change of cognitions were in focus. And actually, originally, that stems from psychodynamic theories, the cognitive model. There is a contrast between that model, the cognitive model, and the the behavior model that is based on learning theory and people sometimes they know, know about Pavlov and Skinner but what they did with their dogs and rats were essentially showing how we learn by associations and how we navigate in the world based on associations but also how we can influence the context that we operate in so there are theoretical and sometimes even philosophical differences. The meditation of yesterday has filled my mind with so many... In this um, school of, of psychology, today 
I would say the vast majority of empirical studies and evidence and also clinicians are oriented towards a pragmatic approach, a behavior-oriented approach. ACT has today become something that many people know about and it has in itself influenced the field. It is very pragmatic and it has like more similarities with other types of behavior therapy. And it fits so well with, with chronic conditions. It's an approach that is very applicable when it comes to chronic conditions that just will not go away, regardless of the pills or the knife or the communication. It will probably remain and probably remain for life. And your job as an individual is to learn how to deal with it in a way that makes it possible to live rather than just staying alive better than staying alive that's excellent and for the listener who thinks that oh this is heavy duty i i don't know how much more i can take of all this uh, theoretical uh, talk this is the background and we will get into practical stuff but i will not leave it just right uh, yet I know you have written a very well-known book about ACT, actually. You didn't say this, but I heard someone else say that you brought ACT to Sweden. Am I talking to the source of Swedish ACT? Is there any truth to that? There were a few of us. Uh, I was uh, one of the early adopters, I guess. ACT had kind of an interesting journey. There were some basic science laboratory experiments and things happening in the U.S. by people that were essentially cognitive behavior therapists or behavior therapists or researchers and that started to investigate accepting stats, your inner reactions like thoughts and emotions that we can't control and ask themselves the question, do we really have to change these? Do we really need to feel better to do better? Can we just take a different stance towards the negative reactions that we get when we move towards that scary but attractive goal. So that was sort of the start of the journey, but it took some time before clinical development. So there was a book published in 1999, and by that time I was the student in Uppsala, and I had a supervisor, Joanne Dahl, that was very excited about this. And she wanted someone to talk to, I guess. And I was a very interested listener. And we chatted about this. And to me, it made perfect sense. I started to dig into it. And, and I also had the opportunity when I started to work in 2001. So I was heading to my first day of work, which was a, the Nordic pediatric pain conference. I was thrown into a world where ACT principles fitted perfectly. I was asked to develop a CBT, a cognitive behavior therapy approach for children and adolescents with chronic pain. Essentially, the healthcare had done everything in their power to remove the problems. And me and Gunnar Olsson, we were trying to figure out how to help these individuals in a way that had not been tested before. And he was excited about CBT. And I had the opportunity to go to the US and visit some of the big centers and big researchers in the field of pediatric pain. I also stopped in Oxford, Mississippi, and spent a week with one of the founders of ACT, Kelly Wilson. 
so I came home very inspired by that. It just fitted perfectly with the clinical demands and the need we had. I essentially came home and said to Gunnar that this was a very useful trip. And sure, we can do traditional CBT, but no, I don't think it will make that much of a difference because these are strategies that will work short term, but not have a dramatic impact on the individual's lives. And he said, whoa, uh, I didn't expect that. So what do you suggest? Well, that's the problem. I don't actually know because there are no research out there yet to show if this works, but there's a logic to it. Applying the ACT principles to chronic pain and, and pediatric chronic pain. So I suggest that's the road we take. We learned by doing. So then I became one of the first to start applying ACT principles and develop a clinical model based on those principles with kids and adolescents. So in the world at that time, there were essentially just me and another, uh, Amy Morell, another person that I, that at least that I knew of that, that were applying these principles to uh, young individuals with different type of problems. She was working with anxiety and depression and things, and I was working pain, which also includes anxiety and depression many, many times. But, so in that sense, and there was also another guy, Niklas Törnecke, who's a wonderful uh, colleague of mine. He's a psychiatrist, and he was very interested in the theoretical aspects of it as well. I didn't know him at that time, but he was also one of the very early adopters. Now, 20 more years, it's very exciting to see how it has developed and how many people today that know about it and also use these principles but it's even more wonderful to see how the field is continuing to develop because act was never thought of as the final solution it's a stepping stone it's always a movement towards improving methods improving knowledge in a sense you did bring act to sweden from the source or at least from someone who was really early with it in the US. Of course, there were other people involved as well. I mentioned Kevin Wilson, uh, Stephen Hayes, who's considered to be kind of the father of the ACT model. He was actually the opponent when I defended my thesis in 2009. Mm. Uh, so he's a good friend and colleague. And it was a very interesting uh, session that lasted for three and a half hours or something. He was not the e easiest opponent on the planet. He was really pushing me in all directions but i learned a lot during my own public defense which was wonderful but i did tell him afterwards that i wanted a rematch <laughs> did you ever get one <laughs> no well not not yet but i gotta find him for a debate of some kind So now I will put you to the test, really. Uh, of course, you can't cure someone you haven't met and not over a, a pod episode like this. But let's say I have met a patient who has chronic headache and no one knows why it started. It's been uh, examined by a top neurologist who doesn't know what this is uh, or actually maybe says it's a very rare condition of a headache but there's actually nothing to do with medication uh, they tried everything uh, uh, but the patient comes to me still has a lot of uh, pain 
which affected the whole life. Uh, doesn't have the social context anymore, can't even speak with the family, uh, tries to be active but uh, lies most of the time in bed because uh, they got the headache, sick leave and so on. And they come to me to hear if there is another medicine actually that the others didn't think about. This is not just a made-up story. I see these patients. What would your thoughts about this be or at least approach if if you were a fly on the wall and saw that I had this patient? So what would you do if you were a fly on the wall and see this patient? I have seen many patients that uh, match that description, both teenagers and adults. Of course, it's important to um, start doing what you probably did to normalize and validate um, these individuals. And what does that mean, to normalize and validate? Well, they have probably been tossed around in the healthcare system for quite a while. They have gotten their hopes up when they've seen a new specialist or a new physician, uh, and they have ended up being very disappointed when they've tried a new pharmaceutical strategy that didn't work. And over time, it's probably growing on them, the feeling of being alone and being someone has a rare condition that no one understands and no one knows how to address. And they can probably also start to question themselves. Like, is it because of us? Did we do something wrong? So what starts as pain, could be headache or pain in the foot or pain all over, What starts as pain probably or normally doesn't stay as only pain. There are added layers to the experience. I had the opportunity at a meeting in Dublin recently to talk about uncertainty, which is something being more and more discussed. And uncertainty refers to, of course, that feeling of, of uncertainty. We don't know what it is. We don't know what we did to get to. How can I deserve this? What should I do with this problem? Will I be able to live my life with this? Who should help me? What's going to happen if the pain doesn't go away? Am I really going to be strong enough to live a meaningful life with this? Will I be able to keep up with my friends? Will I be able to do sports, do school things, work? Will I be lonely? Will someone love me? Because people tend to withdraw from situations that are associated with the risk of increased pain. There's a tendency for very good reasons to avoid situations that are associated with more pain and more anxiety, stress, worrying. But there's also a stigma to this uh, where people with pain feel different um, and they feel uncertain whether or not they fit in and they feel misunderstood. So I think when I say normalize and validate, I think what I mean is just to make sure they understand they're not alone. This is a very common problem. And validating in the sense that it doesn't mean that they did something wrong. It doesn't mean that they deserve this. But it also means that they are in a situation where they need to work towards the solution by themselves and empower them to see their own potential. And that's, of course, hard because they don't know where to go. So what we can do in sort of the next step is to guide them towards a more long-term solution, a more sustainable solution. The healthcare normally tries to 
assess, diagnose, and treat. But for chronic pain, that model doesn't really apply. If you break your leg or if you have some sort of cancer, you can identify the problem, you can diagnose it, and there is a treatment. And then hopefully the problem goes away. But for these chronic conditions, that model does not apply. So it's kind of a mismatch between the patient's problems and what the healthcare system is built for. It's a bit of a dilemma. So many, many people feel lost in the system and, and misunderstood. So just making them aware that we understand. We cannot feel their pain, but we can understand and trust their story. We believe what they say. So that's a very important start. And, and that's not only for us. I mean, that would be a piece of advice to tell all healthcare personnel who are listening to this, that actually tell the patient that you believe their story and maybe not say that, oh, this is strange. I, I don't know why you have this and leave it at that. We don't have all the answers, but like you say, we need to validate that we understand that they're not just making this up. Yes, that goes for both the pain or the, the, the feelings and thoughts they have, but also what they do. Sometimes we tend in healthcare to talk about the patient's behavior patterns as strange. Oh, that's a strange behavior. Why? That's kind of unclear. Why do they do that? And, da, da, da. and sometimes we even kind of distrust the objectives they have. They want to be on sick leave, for example. Uh, they, they don't like their work, so they prefer to be home. Then we start to talk about it in a fairly negative way. The fact is we don't understand like why they're doing what they're doing. So everything we don't understand essentially has to do with not understanding the context in which that behavior occurs. So then any behavior can be seen as strange, but if we understand the context, and what I'm trying to say is essentially a behavior occurs in a context. If you don't know the context, you don't understand the function or the logic of that behavior. But once you understand the context, I would say any problem, any behavior makes sense from, from the patient's perspective. Listen to this. So it's our job to listen carefully to the story. And it's our job to ask questions so that we can end up with a good understanding of the patient. And then we understand there is a purpose of that behavior. And then we can say to the patient, I understand why you do what you do. And it's not strange. In that context, I would probably do the same. And that takes time. I must tell the listener a true story, which was at the ward, there was a patient who had a headache and she was in a room by herself. The first thing that happened was that the healthcare personnel said that she doesn't want to leave the hospital. She wants to be here. So therefore we don't know what to do because she kind of says that she has a headache and nothing helps you need to help us uh, <laughs> with the patient. I went into the room and there the patient was and I started like I usually do. I say that you and I don't know each other. So whatever I'm going to say 
you, you can't really take it personal because I don't know your life, but I, I really need to ask you some questions. And she said, yeah, hit me. <laughs> and I said, uh, you know, there, there are some patients who really don't want to go home when they are at the hospital. And there could be different reasons. Uh, some could actually be that they don't want to go home because they're getting hit by their husband, but they can't really say that. So they say it's something else. Sometimes they don't have a home to go to, or they don't have food, or it could be any uh, objective. Uh, So I really must ask you, is there any other reason for you to stay at this hospital? Because the worst thing that would happen would be that I start giving you medication that you actually don't need, and then you get side effects. And it's actually a completely different reason why you're here. And she looked at me and she was not angry at all. She just said, well, wow, thanks for being so blunt. And she said, "Uh, first of all, I have the most wonderful husband who makes the most wonderful food and dinner. And please excuse me, but the hospital food is not like his food. (laughs) So I really want to go home. Uh, The second thing is I have a puppy at home. And it's quite important to be at home when you have a small dog. And it's a lovely dog, and I want to go back to that one. So there is actually nothing that keeps me at the hospital but my headache. So now I just knew that. Okay, I I don't listen to what the other personnel said. This is not the case. And I was just in in pure luck because there was one medication, you know, an anti-inflammatory drug that she hadn't been used. So I said, okay, use this one and we'll see. And this was maybe 10 o'clock before lunch. And so she started with that one, and then I wanted to see how it went. So I called the ward at three o'clock, and I said, uh, did it have any effect? And they said, oh, she's at home. She got pain relief, and now she's at home. She was in a hurry. <laughs> and I, I, I actually think about that so many times, that if, if I wouldn't dare to ask the question, and I would just listen to the nurse and the doctor who said, ah, she just want to be here. Uh, that could really lead us to the wrong conclusion. It really fits well with what you yeah. are saying. In the patient's context, it's yeah. true. And we need to listen yeah. to that. And maybe it's not right every time for us. And, trust, and trusting the patient and trusting mm. that they actually want to live uh, a meaningful life, but they just don't know how, or they, they are very scared of something. And that keeps them away from from taking the actions that they really would like to, to take. Mm. So I think this is empowering in itself. So taking that kind of listening and trusting approach provides the normalization of validation. And that creates a foundation for the next discussion that is about behavior change. But if you haven't done that, you're smoked. You will never have the trust of the patient. So whatever you say, when you're suggesting something that goes against what the patient feel that they're capable of, when you're saying things that imply that they should do something they're super scared of doing or that will hurt, you, you need the trust of the patient. So creating that platform is the essential step before starting to work on a behavior change. So I would say you probably found the right medication but you also found the trust of the patient. So the patient trusted you enough to dare to go home because I'm sure that the patient thought, okay, it works now, but does it work tomorrow? So there's this element of uncertainty, but 
after the discussion you had with that patient, my guess is that she felt, okay, so he seems to know what he's talking about and he seems to understand me and my problem. So that makes it easier for her to, you know, follow your recommendation. So you did more than just prescribe medication, I would say. Mm If we, as a physician, say something that really isn't bad for the patient, and we do it in all good intent, for instance, we have a slightly overweight patient, and uh, we don't know why they are in pain, and we say, uh, you need to lose weight first. And the patient thinks, uh, but I did have pain before I gained weight, actually. Is that a bad recommendation from the doctor? I mean, sh- should we say good things that, you know, quit smoking, uh, lose weight, uh, start exercising, although we don't really know if that's good for the pain at all? What do you say? I don't really like those kind of imperatives. Like when you say what the patients should do, I, I, never do that or at least try not to do that because it's sometimes it's a little bit dishonest because we don't really know that it will have that effect we think or we hope um, but it's also a little bit disrespectful it is a saying like you haven't thought of this yourself so I'm now going to tell you what you need and I don't like that approach the main reason for not doing that is because it doesn't work you know, we can't be, you know, sitting on their shoulder for the rest of their lives, providing them with information on what they should do. They need to figure that out themselves because we will not be part of their journey. You know, engaging in, in a communication or collaboration with the patient is not like a, a lifelong marriage. We will try to help them to navigate through their lives, but they will navigate it on their own. So that's why it doesn't really work to say you should do this because then they might do it when we're watching, but we will not be watching for long and then they're on their own. So what we need to provide them with is essentially a context where they can start to reflect on the consequences of their actions. And we can guide them in that reflection and help them to see like, okay, if I do this, this is going to happen. If I do that, that is going to happen and many times people with chronic pain are left with two shitty options either i try to keep my pain as low as possible and the price i then will be paying is i don't do much fun i will do things that are essentially withdrawing from all of the type of social interactions that i would like to have i don't go to work and see my colleagues I don't go to parties and see my friends. And in fact, I don't have many friends anymore. They don't invite me to any parties because I've been saying no for 10 years. I don't do things with my family. Well, in fact, they don't really expect me to because uh, I haven't been able to. So in order to keep my pain as low as possible, I pay a huge price. But the other shitty option is to live life fully. And that will hurt. And that will be scary. It will be extremely scary. I will not know how my body will react 
when I do it and I don't know how it will react the day after I do it, I will put myself in a very, very risky situation. So I might be able to do it, but what's going to be the quality of that? You know, if I have, you know, 11 out of 10 on my pain scale, am I going to enjoy sitting at a concert, listening to an orchestra playing the latest concert by Mozart or something? You know, is it going to be, is it going to be worth it? Wait, the latest and, concert by Mozart, is he yeah, still writing stuff? Yeah, it was a paradox on purpose. I was just testing you. <laughs> <laughs> Are you asleep or do you follow? That is also part of the uncertainty. Is it going to be worth it? So when I say that they're left with two shitty options, what I'm saying is that there's utility in both, but there's a, a, a huge price to pay in both. But what is most important is that they can't choose both those roads at the same time. Listen to this. What is most important is that they can't choose both those roads at the same time. And what we can do is to help them to think through and reflect on in what direction do I really want to go? And that brings us to the process of discussing with the patient how they should live their lives from now and onwards. We can reflect with them on what they did, which is important. We can normalize and validate, but we can also talk about what's going to be your next step. And for many, many patients, we don't have that pill that you provided to the headache patient at the ward. We've tried that you know, 16 times and it didn't work. And we have tried essentially everything in the book. And the patient has tried everything in their book as well. So we're ending up with a long, 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 long list of strategies that have been tried. Some of them, the healthcare tried. Some of them, the patient's relatives, family, friends tried. They carry their bags. They mow the lawn or they do the things that are associated with a pain increase. And some of them, the patient has done. It could be things like avoiding going to the party, as I said. It can also be not doing the dishes, but it can be overdoing things too. Like, I'm not going to pace myself. I'm going to work through this. I'm just going to ignore it. And that might not be the ideal way either, because then they're in a mindset that has to do with, I'm going to fight through pain. So they're doing things that they want to do, but they're doing it with the intention of, essentially removing the pain through hard work. So they get super disappointed when pain doesn't go away and they get super upset when pain increases. So that mindset is a problem in itself as well. So they've done many, many, many things. I have never seen a patient in my life that hasn't done everything in their power to remove the pain. So when we talk about the lazy patient, the wimpy patient, it makes me just sad because then you haven't listened. You just have not listened to the story, the narrative. Mm. So that's super important. And, and we need to do that. And we need to talk to the patient about their options, the true options. And sometimes, and many, many times, I would actually say the options are to either continue to stay away from the high-risk situations at the expense of living a vital, meaningful, active life or choosing that active and meaningful life, but paying the price of potential increase of pain, uh, fear, anxiety, 
uh, failure. And that is also associated with the uncertainty because we don't know if it's going to go to hell or not, but we live with the uncertainty, which is very, very scary. So the threat value of pain is the driver of the pain behavior, not the pain intensity. It's the threat value. You know, an Olympic uh, marathon runner will be in pain. I am pretty confident, but they will continue to run. You know, those last 5K where every part of their body is burning, but having the possibility of getting a medal is going to just be more important and they're going to push through. So it's not the pain intensity, but the threat value. So the pain threat value is a very powerful motivational drive to stay away from risk situations where pain may increase. But there's a threat value in taking actions toward a valued life as well. You know, you don't know if it's going to work. You don't know if it's going to be worth it. So entering into that territory is going to be scary. So what we can do is to reflect with a patient, to have them see their options, and then we can empower them to make the decision, and then we can support them wherever they want to go. Since we have so much to talk about, I have divided this talk into two episodes, actually. So for this one, I thank you all and come back next week for more on this matter. Okay. Thank you, Gaston. Thank you. Bye.